tonight we are going to be in Psalm 71. Uh, Psalm 71, and uh, I won't have the text up on the screen. That was an oversight on my part, but uh, we'll be reading the entire psalm, Psalm 71. You can find it on page 484 in the Pew Bible. And so I'll begin reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the heavens. Uh, You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities. And you will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the heart for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. One of the, you know, reading a psalm like that, you almost wonder if it needs a sermon, number one. Uh, but, uh, but Leslie and I recently watched a movie about a couple who uh, were in retirement, essentially getting a, a new lease on life together. The focus of the movie is really on the husband as he is struggles with retirement and aging, being forced to retire, not knowing what to do with himself, being told again and again it was time to enjoy his golden years 
whatever that meant. He could never really define it. Uh, if, actually, for him, it felt like golden years really meant for, it was, they were telling him to embrace his irrelevance. What was beautiful about that movie was that the man, it was what the man was able to do and, and that how he was able to operate, he was able to do particularly because of his age, because of his wisdom, and because of his humility. But we live in a society, and what makes that movie kind of odd in our culture is that we live in a society that worships youth. Wisdom is not valued. It is scorned. If you are old in age, then most things that you did or that you knew are now considered wrong or at the very least out of date. I've even noticed in TV show dialogue lately that dialogue that amongst even seniors, which must be written by young script writers... Uh, that dismisses the idea that there's any benefit to being older, that there's any benefit to having experience, that, that no one really knows what they're doing and no one really gets smarter, no one really gets wiser, no one gets better at these things. And I think this really just reveals uh, our society's disdain for and fear of getting older. I mean, if you worship youth, then what is the thing you will fear the most? Losing it. And that means that even people in church can have a real terror of getting older. And that can result in some very desperate attempts to cling to one's youth. Now contrast that view, that, I, that our society's approach to aging, with the Bible. And the Bible presents a very different picture of what it means to be older. Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. That's not what that hair dye commercial told me, though. All right? They told me I should be embarrassed by gray hair and dye it immediately. All right? But Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Uh, Likewise, Proverbs 20.29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. But the splendor of old men is their gray hair, right? So the next time you see that young guy showing off his strength and doing cartwheels, be like, yeah, well, boom, buddy, right here. You ain't got that, all right? Because gray hair is a symbol of a long life. And for the believer, it is a, lo- a long life that has learned about the world and learned about God Learn things simply that, that a youth simply cannot know. That even if they know in theory because they remember hear someone saying it, they have not experienced it. And we look at this psalm, and essentially we see a man who has gotten old, and he reflects on his past and his present and his future. And he has wisdom to impart to us about what a life lived for God looks like. So we're going to actually tackle this psalm instead of going section by section through it. We're going to, we're going to tackle it essentially topically. And really just, this is a very rich psalm. We could actually spend multiple weeks in this. Uh, and so, but I just wanted to draw out two lessons that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 71. And, and that this is, and again, these are lessons that are, that are coming from a man who is many years into life. And, this, and, and these two lessons are these. First, we're going to look at how God is a certain refuge for those who call on him. And secondly, that God gives us our life now and forever. 
So first, let's look at how God is a certain refuge to those who call on him. And, and obviously uh, um, that God is our refuge. He is the refuge of his covenant people. Right out the gate, the psalmist, who is never named, though many believe it to be David, uh, declares his refuge that he is taking. He says, I'm taking refuge in God. That's what he says right at the beginning. And not just in God, but in Yahweh. The God of the covenant. The psalmist refers to him also as my God and the Holy One of Israel. And as such, this God is the refuge, the rock, the fortress of his people who brings deliverance and rescue. These are the words and phrases and verbs that come up again and again describing this God. The psalmist references the righteous character, the unique righteous character of God, at least twice to explain why and how God delivers his people. He delivers his people according to his righteousness. He does not forsake his own. The psalmist knows this particularly because he has been with God. He has depended upon God his whole life. In verse 6, he states his dependence upon God even before his birth. He highlights how it was God who essentially delivered him out of his mother. He said, you were my delivery doctor. The writer of the psalm roots his confidence not only in the character of God, but also in the constancy of God that he has witnessed over the years. In verse 3, he calls God a rock of refuge to which he may continually come. In verse 17, he says that from his youth, the Lord had taught him all his wondrous deeds and that his life is a part of a larger story of God's goodness and righteousness. The author seems to be writing at a point where he has seen better days, that his life in recent years has taken a turn for the worse. Yet he knows that God is in control and he does not lose hope because he says God, my hope is in you. You are my hope. My hope is not in my changing circumstances. My hope is in my God. He says that this God, his God, has made him see many troubles and calamities. Think about that. All the praise that he has. And this psalm is filled with praise. He delights to praise his God. Yet it includes this sentence. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. He knows who's in control. He says, this God will revive me again. He will bring me up again. He will increase my greatness again. He will comfort me again. The point here is simply that the author of this song has learned over a lifetime of experience that God is a sure refuge For his people. He does not fail when his people seek refuge in him. This refuge is a refuge of favor, grace, and love poured out upon his people. We see that as as this author has lived, gained, and lost, he has learned greater and greater dependence upon God for everything. And so if if we learn nothing else from this man tonight, We ought to hear and learn well that God is a sure refuge for his struggling and hurting people.
This is what the author wants us to know. But the question is, how do we take refuge in God? He says, I'm taking refuge in God, but how does one do that? What's the process? Do I put in an application? Do I have to download an app? Like, what, How do you take refuge in God? Uh, well, as he demonstrates for us and essentially tells us, we renew our refuge through prayer. We renew our refuge in God through prayer. And, and, so, and so this is the practice by which we renew our refuge in God. This is what the author is doing for us by example in this very psalm. The very fact that he goes to God in his old age declaring his need in, in the process shows us how he has continually throughout his life leaned upon God and, and doing so impresses upon us the importance of prayer. Prayer that addresses the needs we have in our emergency moments. Like those enemies who seek our life. Those who are actively rooting for our public downfall as the psalmist is dealing with. There is no doubt the psalmist is crying out to God here for personal deliverance from an immediate threat. Yet we should also note that this psalm is filled with praise and the expectation of praising God for his deliverances yet to come. But again, our focus here is not so much on what the psalmist says as much as it is on what the psalmist does. This man prays, he reveals to us that he has prayed, and he continues to pray. He prays because he knows his God. He prays because he has been known by this God since before he was born. He prays because he has seen the past deliverances of his people and even of himself in his own lifetime. I remember one of my professors in Orlando was taking a practical theology course. He was a retired pastor, and we called that class, I think it was called Pastoral Theology. We called it Stories with Steve, and uh, because that's what that class was. He just came and told us all these crazy stories from being a pastor in the 70s, and um, and, uh, but it was interesting because he's, he told us as, you know, as a bunch of seminary students who were not professionally serving vocationally as ministers in the church, you know, he said, he said, I bet a lot of you, if not most of you, have some real nagging doubts about whether this whole thing is really true and really real, whether the gospel really changes lives. He said, but, but he promised, he said, you know, once you get into ministry, it's not all going to be roses, it's not all going to be great and amazing. But you're going to see the gospel work. You're going to see lives change. You're going to see the amazing things that at some point you're going to say to yourself, hey, this thing is real after all. Here's a man telling us, through many years of experience, sorrows and joys, and even in present hardship, telling us prayer works. Prayer is the means of taking refuge in God today. If we are to take refuge in God, then we must learn how to pray. We must learn to pray often, to pray with praises, and to pray for our needs. And over time, we will learn to pray with trust and with expectation. 
But we need to learn to pray because, you know, one of the reasons... Prayer is just one of the things that so many people struggle with and so many people say they're bad at. You know, and, and, so, uh, and so even on pa- even pastors, most pastors I know, if you talk to them and ask them, what's, you know, what's the biggest weakness in your life? And they'll say, a lot of them will say prayer. They just wrestle with it, struggle with it. Because it's easy not to pray. It's easy to worry. It's easier to get busy with all the list of things that need to get done. And for some reason, even though it's the easiest thing in the world to do, you don't have to go anywhere to do it. You can do it in your car. You can do it while you walk, while you walk around. You can, you know, like you can pray anywhere. Yet so many of us say, I really struggle to pray. Why is that? Well, that's got to be a heart issue. It's got to be a, a personal heart and discipline issue. But over time, as we learn to pray, experience will teach us that God manifests his power in our weakness. You show me a Christian who is faithful to pray, not just like legalistically pray, because he thinks God's going to throw a lightning bolt at him if he doesn't do his daily prayers. But a Christian who earnestly prays on a daily basis, I will show you a humble man. One who has learned to depend upon God. It was Charles Simeon. I read in a commentary this week that uh, Charles Simeon is a famous um, British pastor. And uh, he had served in the same church, Trinity Church, for 44 years. And he uh, finally retired. And he was, uh, and then, but... uh, Someone in the church found out that he was still getting up at 4 a.m. and lighting his fire himself, and, and so that way he could get time alone with God. And uh, someone came to him and said, you know, Pastor, aren't you, you've retired. Like, aren't you going to kind of sleep in? You know, aren't you going to do it? And he was like, I'm so close to the finish line. Why would I take my foot off the gas now? He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing. But, but he's like, why would I back off? Why would I lighten up? I'm near the end. <laughs> He said, I'm just going to push it down harder, and I'm going to pray more. So, but God manifests our power in, uh, his power in our weakness. Note that the psalmist is not upset that he has weaknesses, but rather acknowledges how he has come more and more to depend upon God. In verses 19 to 21, he declares the righteousness of God that has done great things, that, that, makes, that essentially God is a unique being. There is none like him. Yet, as we mentioned earlier, God has also, in his providence, had the psalmist experience many troubles and calamities. Yet, though he finds himself in the very depths of the earth, he says, he knows that God will bring him up and revive him again. In this way, the psalmist acknowledges his weakness in light of the power of God, seeking deliverance and rescue. But his long life in the Lord adds a great confidence that God will come through with power. 
It actually, reading this section, reminded me of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he's meditating on his own weakness, that thorn in the flesh, and the Lord, and he declares the Lord's words to him, My grace is sufficient for you, because my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, there are certainly folks who are young who have been through tremendous loss or struggles who have learned this truth. But a lifetime of following the Lord gives you a full foundation. When one moves from largely wondering about what may happen in their life and move from there to thinking about reflecting on what has happened in their life, They can look at the pattern of their life and see God's power at work in their own weakness. This is the confession of the Christian life. Not me. It was the Lord at work. All the good that I have in this life, it is the Lord's doing. And so Paul says, because of this, he will gladly boast in his weaknesses. So the power of Christ will rest upon him. He says in in the next verse, in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you fearful of your present troubles? Are you terrified by your current circumstances? Then you need to hear the testimony of one who has followed the Lord all his life. He has done great things for you. The Lord has done great things for you. He shall do great things for you still. We need to hear Moses While we cower like Israelites before the army of Pharaoh with the Red Sea to our backs, who declared the word of the Lord and said, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. What did he do? He brought him safely across the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army. Will he not do more, even more for us on this side of the cross? I instantly thought of this quote, and I've used it before. It's just, it's just, it's kind of one of those unforgettable quotes. But Polycarp, when the church father was killed for for his faith in the Lord, he was threatened with tortures and all manners of death. But his response was this: Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. Eighty-six years. I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That is the confession, not of young faith, but of old faith. Faith that has grown stronger with age. It is a faith that is steeled and refined through hardship. A faith that is certain of the refuge that we have in God because we have experienced it. That is the first lesson. God is a sure refuge for his people. The second will be a little more brief. But the second lesson is that God gives us our life, both now and forever. 
And we see it in, in two aspects. That first, that God gives us both our present dignity and our purpose. It's interesting, verse 7 is a, is a bit odd because it uses an odd word. When was the last time you used the word portent? Does anyone know what a portent is? <laughs> so, A portent is an ominous sign. A vulture is a portent of death. It is an ominous sign. It is a sign, biblically speaking, of divine judgment. This word is used to describe the kinds of things that God did to the Egyptians with the ten plagues. And what he's saying is, what Psalmist is saying, he's saying, many, have viewed, many, many people have viewed my life like a Titanic. That's how good of a life he's had. Many people have looked at my life, the psalmist says, as the, as the judgment of God. Yet, the psalmist does not derive his dignity, meaning, or purpose in how others estimate him. In his difficult life, he has learned the irrefutable truth that God is his strong refuge and he will not be shaken. At this point in his life, his purpose is defined simply by God's power and God's promises. Further, his life is dedicated to, ta- to sharing that with the next generation. That's part of the reason he wants that deliverance, so he can share it with those who are coming after him. To speak to them, to teach them of the power of God. And specifically the power of God to save. You know, it's interesting, it's rude to acknowledge one's age today or someone else's age if it's not your own even to address an audience and to hint that there may be people that are older in the audiences seem to be rude we need to learn not to cast aside decades of life as if it doesn't mean anything or as if it hasn't happened For those who come to faith in, later in life, who maybe aren't, aren't like the psalmist, who say, well, you know, I can't say with the psalmist that I followed the Lord, you know, that he pulled me out of the womb. Uh, but, you know, but even those who come to faith later in life can testify to the emptiness of the world and the goodness of God and his grace, even in their short time of following him. But those who have followed the Lord like the psalmist, those who essentially have followed God from birth or from early childhood, can testify, do testify, to the faithfulness of God. There are stories here from people in this room that need to be told. Stories of the power of God that has been at work in your life, that is at work in your life. This isn't, I'm not talking about sharing stories about the good old days. Because we, we all have to acknowledge that the good old days weren't that good. They weren't as good as we make them out to be. They had different problems. Not, maybe not the problems we're de- dealing with today. But these are stories about how the goodness and grace of God was, has been on display in our lives. It is that personal past that is rooted and defined by the scriptures that shapes our view of the present and the future. I was reminded, uh, one of my professors, um, I've mentioned, talked about him before, um, but he, was, he, he oversaw the, the translation of the Old Testament for the NIV. And so he was big Harvard brain guy and, and, um, and uh, just, he, I mean, just 
knew Hebrew backwards and forwards. I mean, just, just knew it. He'd just take out his Hebrew Bible, open it up, and just start reading, you know. Well, he, they would bring him in. He would fly him in from Vancouver, Canada for the summer session. And so, and the, the, uh, the seminary would always give him an apartment to stay in. And, and he always made a point during that time to have a barbecue for his students. And he would grill hamburgers for his students. He'd invite them to the apartment and they'd have them together. And then he'd do a little Q&A session with them. And, um, and so one of the questions was, is, well, you know, well, professor, what, uh, um, you know, what lessons do you have for us, you know, young folks? You know, he, he was in his 80s. And, um, and again, I mean, this is a guy who got multiple degrees from Harvard. Um, you know, he just, he, he hit, he, he preached to churches regularly. I mean, this guy was, for seminary students, this guy's a rock star, right? He's, he's done so much and what we could, what we could only dream of doing. And, uh, he said, what's, you know, if you could just go back and do something different, what might that be? That was the question. And he thought, he thought for a moment and he said, I think. I should have been a better husband to my wife earlier. That was his response. You know what? There are some seminary students there that needed to hear that. Right? Those reflections that look back on a life well lived. But, and he said, my wife wanted to have children. But by the time I got done with my studies, we couldn't. Now they adopted four. And the Lord used that and blessed that. He's the, but he just, but there is a part of him that wonders if he should have listened to his wife and met her needs a little bit sooner. You know, like those are the kinds of stories that young people need to hear, that need to be shared. And so there, there are stories to tell. And God gives us our present dignity and our future purpose. Our dignity is not defined by how useful we are in the marketplace. Our dignity is not defined by those things. Our dignity is defined by the God who made us and who calls us. And that we, as, even as his church, need to honor God's design and God's blessing of us by sharing those stories that we have and also listening to those that are shared. Finally, God gives us sure hope of the joy to come. God gives us sure hope of the joy to come. One thing that comes... Th- just clearly through in the psalm besides praise is hope the psalmist has has had a rough life he's having a rough go over right now but this psalmist is hopeful it's almost hard to see because it's almost hard to see that he's having a bad time the way that he talks you think everything's going great but you start pulling the details together you're like this sounds like this guy's having a bad day or bad years or bad decade yet he is filled with hope and praise for god the psalmist expects to be delivered from his present enemies who dismiss him, who dismiss his faith, and who even actively seek, if not root for, take the taking of his own life. And though the psalmist has seen troubles and calamities, he yet praises God and he is confident that his praises will be renewed in the time to come. And that lesson for us now is if we are not praising God today as believers, we should know that the time will come when we will praise him yet. If we cannot open our mouths because we are cupping them with horror and sorrow in the moment, we should still hold out the hope, the knowledge for certain, absolute certainty that one day we will praise again. The entire back half of this psalm is about the writer's confidence that not only will he be delivered in the end, but that he will praise the Lord with instruments 
and song. He will shout for joy, joy that springs out from his very soul. He will not stop talking, he says. I'm not going to stop talking all day, all day long. I'll be talking about the deliverances of the Lord. So no matter where you're at today, we need to listen to this man of God in Psalm 71. We don't know who he is. Maybe David. We don't know. But we need to listen to him. We need to know that because of God, there will be a brighter day. There will be a day when, where, where you are filled with praise. Praise is pouring out of your own soul for the redemption and the work of God that he has done. What's wonderful is that this psalm is not written by some new, hot, young psalm writer. It doesn't come from the pen of a young idealist. It is written by a man of God who has been in the trenches of life, who has known loss of reputation, the loss of strength, who is vulnerable to death. It is written by a man of God who has seen the deliverance of God in his life again and again because his life has been so hard. Someone who can testify to the constant deliverances of God has been in a place where he needed to be delivered again and again and again. He has learned through the school of hard knocks that God is a certain and sure refuge of his people. The testimony of gray hair is a life of faith tested by reality. And so if you're older tonight, remember that you have a story to tell. You have a testimony of God's grace in your life. Reflect upon your life. Share those stories. And may those who are younger treasure these testimonies. And may it strengthen all of us in our fight in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the wisdom of the church that comes from years living for you. We know that our lives are often filled with sorrows and miseries, and and while we are quick to forget them, to move past them, to to seek uh, greener pastures and, and, and higher mountains, Lord, may we not forget the ways you have delivered us, especially how you've delivered us ultimately from from death and judgment and sin, and how you've given us new life in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would treasure those who have lived many years in the Lord, that we would listen and hear the wisdom that they have for us. We pray that those who are older, that we, that, that we would share that wisdom, that believers would share it and not hold it back because feeling that it's irrelevant or that no one cares. Lord, teach us how to have a biblical view of age, to celebrate, Lord, many years of life living for you. And Lord, no matter where we're at tonight, Whatever we're wrestling with tonight, Lord, may you move us. May you encourage us. May you strengthen us by this testimony in Psalm 71 to know that there is yet light to come and there is yet coming a day where we will sing praises anew of your deliverance and mercy and love.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.